Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that time of worship. As you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, we continue our study um, through this wonderful gospel. Um, In the New Testament, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're looking at the gospel of Luke. And uh, periodically we'll go to the other Gospels to kind of, there's more information in some of the other Gospels in Luke and as we put together the big picture. Um, But this is a powerful chapter. Uh, We've we've learned at the beginning of chapter 1 that Luke undertook uh, to to write an orderly account to a man named Theophilus. And and he he evaluated the life of Jesus Christ through so many different uh, witnesses and um, conversations And being a historian, uh, Luke wanted to make sure that there was given to not only Theophilus, but we benefit from it, an account of Jesus' life set in a historical framework. And that's certainly true as we read this passage, the emphasis Luke places on that. And so we're going to look at Luke 3. Um, But I kind of want to remind you, the goal of our series as we've walked through this, and will continue to be, is that, that God would teach us to see to really open our spiritual eyes to see what we haven't before, to see more clearly, to hear, to have ears to really hear what the Spirit wants to say to you and to me through our study, that God would teach us to feel. We sometimes can live in a a world that's static, and we we, we don't really know what to do with our emotions, and God is the one who's given them, and, and I'm just praying as we go through this, we learn to feel what breaks God's heart and what feel what God rejoices in. And then ultimately through that all, as he teaches us to, to see and to hear and to feel, that we'd, we'd learn to love, to love like he does. And what love like he models throughout the book of Luke, as we'll see. That's been our prayer, and let, might it continue to be. And so as we open the word, let's ask the Spirit to teach us and to do these things within us. Our Father, we, we come this morning... And as the songs certainly emphasize, we are needy. We need you. We need your word in a world that is filled with many voices that don't speak of you or speak for you and certainly don't speak from you. Give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to say. Give us eyes to see, to see you to see your truth as you present it in your word. God, might we hear your heartbeat. As we open your word, might we really sense in a greater way what breaks your heart and what, and what thrills your heart. So we open our hearts, our minds wide to you this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is kind of a hinge passage in a sense uh, as I read it over and over, it, it seems like Luke's, it's kind of presenting this as something monumental in history. It's a hinge to what we're about to read about Jesus. And he sets right off the bat this in a historical setting. He, he mentions six names. Let's read the first couple of verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, 
and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. There's six names that set this historical setting, and it's unique because these six names do it in almost like expanding ways. We hear, first of all, Tiberius Caesar, which takes us to an international setting, Rome, the Roman province, Tiberius Caesar, a brutal, unrighteous individual who climbed his way to the throne. And in the 15th year of his reign, John the Baptist showed up. And again, as I mentioned last week, this is about 18 years later than what we read at the end of chapter 2. And so there's an international historical context. There's also a national context, specifically of Israel, by the other names mentioned. Pontius Pilate, he was a governor of Judea. Herod, he was a tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip was a tetrarch of the region of Ituria. And, and Trachonitis, and then this guy named Lysanias. And so from this broad view of the Roman Empire, Luke telescopes to this land of Palestine which had been entrusted to Pontius Pilate, Herod, and Philip. And this was really a political hornet's nest. It belonged to, in a sense, belonged to Pilate's governorship. Pilate actually is from Spain, kind of married into the family. Family wasn't too keen of him, so they're like, well, let's just give him the little spot governor of Palestine. And so Pontius Pilate, we read about him in other places as well. But basically, he was cruel he was anti-Jewish, and he kind of flaunted his stuff as Roman governor. And so as this historical backdrop, we have the international look at it and a telescope into the national, but it's not just that. Luke telescopes to specifically the spiritual backdrop by bringing into it Annas and Caiaphas. Now, as you look at these two names, first of all, they're both incredibly arrogant, power-hungry, with Annas really pulling the strings of his, of his influence. Annas is a retired high priest. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was the acting high priest. But the reality is Annas pulled the strings. Matter of fact, if we go to Jesus' six trials when he was brought, remember who he was brought to first? Annas, who wasn't even the acting high priest. But in the people's eyes, he was more respected. Then they brought him to Caiaphas after they found out what Annas thought. And so he was really the one pulling the strings. And so as we look at this historical backdrop, this historical setting, we have international, we have the national, and then it zooms into the spiritual backdrop. And into this moral corruption at every level, John comes. Now we know from cross-referencing with other Gospels, he was built up in the wild. He was removed from fame and power. And he was consecrated by God to shatter his 400 year of prophetic silence, although you could make the claim Simeon shattered that earlier on a much smaller scale. But along comes John. He came with this burning message from heaven. And placing these events in a fresh historical setting marks a new beginning in the story and ties salvation history to world history. This is important. Because again, Luke's writing an orderly account. If anyone really wanted to check out whether Jesus really came, if they were an honest seeker, they just need to look at history. 
And they would find out Jesus did step in. I mean, think about it this way. I could say that when I, when I was born, nationally, JFK was president. Locally, the mayor of Chicago was Richard Daly. And there was a certain mayor in Crystal Lake, Illinois, and that would set me in a historical context. That's what's being done here in John. Internationally, nationally, and spiritually. And again, there's moral corruption at every level. So he's not stepping into a very spiritually sensitive environment. And these rulers may appear to have more influence than John. That's what's interesting about the story. But they had no clue of who John was. No clue that the foundations and the murderous ideologies that they supported would be shaken to the core in some obscure corner of the empire by an obscure prophet. These verses communicate loudly to you and I that the transcendent God and his power control the story, not the Roman political dominance. And so we have this John's times in this historical setting but then we get John's message. Now, let's read verse 3 through 9 and, and, and get, a, get a flavor for what John says. Verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with the repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, even now. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I thought about, for a moment, wearing this morning some ripped-up jeans and an old cruddy T-shirt and come up here. And some of you, let's be honest, would cringe. You'd say, that's not our pastor. Who is that? Uh, you'd look and say, boy, that that's dress isn't really fitting. Well, that's what they thought when they looked at John the Baptist. I mean, how could we listen to a guy like that? He, he wears camel skin, for goodness sakes. Eats locusts. Hair's probably long and matted. I, I mean, how, how do we listen to a guy like that? Well, it was his message that grabbed people's hearts. Luke's readers would know that in the Old Testament, when God was about to do something, prophets showed up. And he would bring the word of the Lord. The people would pay attention to this prophet of God. And in this sense, John is cast in the role of an Old Testament prophet, which not only the Old Testament predicted, but in Luke 16, Jesus pointed to and put John the Baptist as the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so that's how you, how you have John showing up, and he looked like it. He went in the wilderness like Elijah, and he was truly the last of the Old Testament prophets who showed up here. And his message was very much like it. But he also had a message of hope. As you hear of what he spoke, there's words he speaks that communicate hope to a people for 400 years who've been waiting for a word, word of God. 
he preaches the gospel. He mentions in his message, as they quote um, Isaiah 40, which, by the way, all the gospels quote it. He mentions he came into all the region proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. People heard that. Wait, my sins could be forgiven? As he quoted Isaiah 40, it talks about people will see the salvation of God. There was good news as part of John's message. It had a hard edge, but it was filled with hope. Now, it's some other interesting things to this that I find interesting. It's, it's to where John showed up. It mentions the Jordan in verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan River. The Jordan River was about 156 miles long, emptied into the Dead Sea. And it's, it's kind of in that area where they come together that John shows up. Why would he come there? I asked that, and, and one of the commentaries, one of the commentators said, could it be that this is where the entire nation underwent a national baptism when they crossed the Red Sea? That's an intriguing thought. Maybe. But he's in the wilderness, and if, if you were to study some uh, Bible background, you'd find out that this is really legitimately the wilderness. Think of the uh, Sahara Desert times four. There's nothing here. It is literally out in the middle of nowhere. And that's where John goes. And as we read about his responsibilities, verses 4 through 6, again, Isaiah 40 points this out, what it is. His responsibilities were threefold. He was to clear the way. To clear the way of all the clutter, all the spiritual um, junk, all the corruption that was there. He was to clear the way. He was then to prepare the way for the Lord, to, that hearts would be prepared, that, that people would be ready to receive the message. And so he was to clear the way, prepare the way, and then he was to get out of the way, which perhaps that was the hardest part. It certainly would be the hardest part for us, right? To just get out of the way so Jesus could be seen. And that's his responsibility. He knew the authority that came with his role, but he knew his limitations. He was the voice, Jesus was the word. He was the messenger, Jesus was the message. He was the lamp, but Jesus was the light of the world. He was a man, but Jesus was the Messiah. He came into this world as a light, but the true light that gives light to all men was coming into the world. They even asked John the Baptist, they said, who are you? John 1, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. Are you one of the prophets? He said, I'm not. Then tell us who you are, John. He says, I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice of one calling out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's, that's all I am. I'm nothing more. That was his testimony. He was just a voice. And his messages whetted the spiritual appetites for Jesus' life-giving bread. He came to help people hunger for the Savior, hungry enough to change their lives. And if you look at verse 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. To his hearers there, this wasn't just the Jewish people. This is all flesh. All flesh would see the salvation of God, Jew and Gentile. It's a foretaste of his ministry. As we go through Luke, you're going to see very clearly the emphasis Jesus placed on outsiders tax collectors, prostitutes, 
All those who society deemed lepers, all those society deemed on the outside, Jesus loved greatly. And we're going to see that all through Luke. And we see it right here in verse 6. Now, as I thought about John, I thought, okay, if you and I said, you know what? Let's plan a successful ministry. And, and would we do these things? Don't go where the people are at. Make them come to you. And if you want a successful ministry, make them come to you and sit in a dusty ground. And then what if you like, okay, it, it, to be successful, why don't, why don't I just deliberately dress with ratty camel skin clothing? Why don't I just do that? Come out of the woodwork then, won't they? I got an idea. Why don't you insult your audience? As they come, insult them. I mean, expose their private sins. Speak offensively. Embarrass top-ranking government officials. Embarrass them. And then when the crowds start coming, here you go, send them to the minister down the road. That a way to build a successful ministry? Well, not according to us, but according to John the Baptist, that's the way he did it. I mean, he did all those things. And people kept coming. Just amazed at this, at this guy. It's, it's incredible because it goes against everything we think should build a ministry. I mean, what a brand he has, right? PR firms would shake their head at John and go, that's not the way to do it. And yet, that's how he did it. In verse 7, I mean, here he goes right off the bat. you got all these people coming out, and there's nothing sensitive about this. Hey, thanks for coming out, you brood of vipers. It's good to see you, you snakes. That's how he begins his message. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Whoa. I mean, it's scathing. And today, if John was alive, he wouldn't care what was trending. He wouldn't care what people put on Facebook. His passion was birthed by the Holy Spirit's conviction. I mean, it was his message that came, and it came in fire. It came with the Holy Spirit. And that's how he spoke to the audience. I remember one time during December, I was preaching, a, we were preaching a series in December and Christmas messages, and, and the particular message I gave was on Jesus' second coming. Obviously, he came once, he's going to come again. I thought, here's a great chance to share about that. And, and as I did, I mentioned in the message, on this, what was supposed to be a Christmas message, I guess, uh, that for those who reject Jesus Christ as Savior, the second coming isn't something they should look forward to. Because the wages of sin is death. And that for those who reject Jesus Christ, they'll spend eternity in hell. And I remember after that, a man came up to me and he said, what kind of Christmas message is that? Well, you know, a lot of stuff went through my head, right? You know, and uh, you grab your words and... Uh, when words are many, um, sin is not absent. So it was good for me. I think I bit my tongue at that point. But what was his expectation? His expectation was there's a message, a certain message you should give at this time of year, and it should not have a hard edge to it. And we may have said that with John. Hey, you got people coming out. Let's keep them coming out, John. Cut the edge, would you, buddy? We could talk about forgiveness, but 
you know, don't be calling them vipers and snakes. Don't, don't embarrass the celebrities who show up. Don't do that, John. Well, John didn't care. He was being faithful to his call. And so he communicated what we would probably deem as inappropriate. But everyone needs to know wrath is coming. Everyone needs to know that. They need to know there's a hell. They need to know there's consequences for their sin. They need to know that. John told them that. Now remember, John's speaking to many who were the worst kind of religious hypocrites. Their presence at the Jordan was for show and jealousy. And don't miss it. God had sent his prophet not to the temple in Jerusalem, but to the wilderness by the Jordan. And that had to just gnaw at the religious leaders mind and, and gnaw at their spirit when they saw all these people coming not up but down and here they come but make no mistake they're a jealous group they believed that their heritage as Abraham, Abraham's offspring secured them favor with God John's message is clear pedigrees don't produce fruit let's read on Verse 9, now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? He answered them, whoever has two, in it, two tunics to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized. They said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to. Soldiers also asked him, and what about us? What should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. In verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He had a message of repentance. And don't miss verse 10 through verse like 15 because it's based on what he said in verse 7. He said to the crowds, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits, verse 8, in keeping with repentance. Repentance. Metanoia is the Greek word. It means to turn, to turn around, to change. Turn around in your thinking. Turn around in your behavior. Too many have preached a gospel that says just believe. And they leave out to repent. Because if you put the two together, they're two sides of the same coin. Belief is to turn to Jesus Christ in faith, trusting him alone. And what he did on Calvary and rising from the dead to pay for your sins. Repenting says, I'm going to turn away from my old life and turn to you. Belief, turn to Jesus. Repentance, turn from yourself and sin to him. There is no salvation without belief. There's no salvation without repentance. Only genuine belief and repentance will bring salvation. There is no such thing as easy believism or a belief without repentance. You may have walked forward and said, I believe, but my question to you is, when you walked forward, did you repent? 
Did you say I'm a hell-deserving sinner and there's nothing I have within me to pay for my sin? I turn from every effort. I turn from my old self and I turn to you, Jesus, to follow you. Have you done that? It's a significant question. And if you haven't repented, you need to back up the truck and say, I don't think I understand then really what I need to, how I need to respond to what Christ did. Follow Acts 19 with me. Go to Acts 19, 1 through 5. Let's have some fun here. And, and this is going to explain the difference between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. It happened, Acts 19, that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, came to Ephesus. Then he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Well, into John's baptism. Paul said John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can kind of see what's happening. Here's these disciples are wandering around and been baptized with John. That's all I know. No one ever told him anything else. Paul comes along and says, dialogues with him. He doesn't get all over him. He understands what's going on. And what he's telling them is John came with a baptism of preparation. Jesus came with a baptism of transformation. Because when Jesus baptized, he gave the Holy Spirit. There were two different baptisms. One was preparatory, one was transformative. And that's what he's telling. And that's what he's showing in Acts 19. And that's what we're learning right here. And so with this simple, simple message, John indicts the most religious, respected leaders of the day and says, you need to repent. For one, John says, you don't need to go to the temple to repent. You don't need to go to religious leaders to repent. Before God, you need to repent of your sins. This divinely sanctioned repentance took one down to the Jordan, not up to Jerusalem. And if they weren't safe from God's wrath... Who was? Now, the question would come, what fruit of repentance was God looking for that John mentioned? Well, that's what his hearers asked. Well, what, what, what should we do? And, and there's three groups who ask it. I hope you noticed that. You see, repentance for John meant more than taking a dip in the Jordan and having a spiritual experience. It means changing one's life. In all the categories of life, as a spouse, as a parent, as a roommate, as an employee, as a boss, we are to practice our Christian beliefs, not just give verbal assent to them. If repentance is true, then it will impact our giving. It will impact our attitudes. It will impact our treatment of other people. It may begin with a sorrowful heart, but it must end with determined action. And so verse 10, we have a good question. The crowds ask them, what should we do? And John gives practical examples of what repentance would look like. He speaks to each group where they're at. And he says in verse 11 through 12 to the crowds, hey, if you got two tunics, share it with somebody who doesn't have one. And whoever has food, share it with those who don't. In other words... Share with other people. The repentant will love. The repentant will share. Change is seen and loving and sharing with other people. How simplistic is that? All, 
how people will know that you're my disciples, Jesus said, well, if you love one another. Right, it's pretty simple. If you have a changed life, share with other people. Well, they're not the only group that asks. Verse 12, here comes the tax collectors. Now understand, these are despised people. The IRS, nobody here is really a big fan of the IRS. And, and these people were the IRS, plus they're going to rip you off even more. They're going to add on to your taxes so they can live a little wealthier life. So these are not a good group. And, and they come to be baptized, and they said, what about us? I think the tax collectors understood as part of this whole crowd, they maybe represented a different kind of group. And to them, this despised group, seen as dishonest, John says, you know what? You're going to show you've changed by your sparing and caring. Quite simple. Spare people the extra fee, care for them. I mean, don't come to rip them off. Care for people. Well, then the soldiers get in and they say, what, what about us? What do we do? And he speaks to them in their context. Don't extort money from anyone by threats, false accusation. Be content with your wages. I mean, it's, it's the same message. Just love one another. Care for others. Share with others. Don't do what others in your situation are doing. Boy, isn't that practical? All your coworkers may be doing it, but if you've repented, your behavior will follow. You'll look different. Others might steal from work, but, but that's not you because that's not a changed life. You're to care. You're to share. So, and notice, John doesn't tell anyone to leave their profession, doesn't tell anyone to leave their position. He just says, in your position, you share with people, care for other people. That will be fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, although John is effective, in verses 15 through 18, Jesus will be so mighty that John would not be worthy of a slave's menial task of untying his shoes. And although John purifies the people in preparation with water baptism, Jesus will purify them through the spirit baptism and fire. You see, only Jesus has the power to transform. Only Jesus has the power to judge between the righteous and the wicked, which is what he's saying in verses 16 through 17. And then verse 18, we read this. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. In other words, we don't get the whole story. There was more things John said. John continued to preach the good news to all those who came to hear this oddball of a preacher. They kept coming, he kept preaching the good news. And so Luke says, I, I couldn't give you everything. Because he, he said a lot of things to a lot of people, but he summed it up and said what he really did, he just preached the good news to people. And then we get a snippet of John's courage. Verse 19, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now the story behind these verses is a very tangled one. And to try to sum it up, you have Herod Antipas, he had several half-brothers. One of them married the deceiving Herodias. But Herodias said, okay, you're going to have nothing to do with me unless you divorce this wife who's your queen. 
So, this Philip, divorces wife who is queen, hooks up with Herodias, and that's what you get. So after divorcing and disgracing his wife, Antipas got Herodias. Only John had the courage to bring this dark affair into the light. For that, he was thrown into prison, eventually beheaded at the request of Herodias' daughter. We read about that in Mark 6, 17 through 29. But all that was really in the future. Once again, Luke's giving context to John's ministry by saying he was a man of great courage. Obviously, as you read the message he preached, who he preached it to, this once again talks about John's message of righteousness. We need today in our culture men of courage, men who will share the truth in the workplace, where you work, at school. Men of courage, just like John, who displayed it by his message of repentance, his standing for righteousness before influential men and women. He would not back down. Well, there's some things that struck me as I, as I read this and, and think about it. One is, I'm struck by John's commitment to point to Christ. He had all the crowds coming. There was every temptation to say, wow, look, look what I'm doing. I got all these followers. I got all these hits on my Facebook. Obviously different context. But the point is, he could have really soaked this all up. But he had a strong commitment to decrease so Christ would increase, as John says. Messiah, above all else, must be lifted up. And he would seek to decrease so Jesus Christ could increase. Let's seek to follow John's example and make a commitment to point in our life to Jesus Christ above all. Let's, let's follow John's example in that. He also demonstrated great courage and faithfulness in preaching what he was called to. We would say the full gospel. The full response to Jesus was necessary, that people needed to believe and repent. It wasn't just an easy, flippant decision, like punching a clock to get into heaven. Repentance was necessary. To turn to Christ in belief that he's the only Savior and to turn from your old life to follow him. So make that your message, but I also need to back up and ask you, have you believed and have you repented? It's the most important question you can ask this morning. Have I done that? And only you can answer that in your heart of hearts. If you'd like to dialogue more on that, come see me. I'd love to talk with you about it. Again, it's the most important decision you're going to make in this life. Turning to Christ as your Savior and turning away from your sin and the old life. Let's make sure, let's make sure as God's people we share that message. I'm also struck that he called people, and he modeled to them, the necessity of pursuing righteousness, of caring for people, of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. He wasn't a fruit inspector. He just laid it out and said, if you've repented, your life will reflect it. And he pursued righteousness. Let's, let's seek righteousness in our daily living, in our daily thoughts. Let's follow John's example of pursuing righteousness. And so as I put this together, I'm like, what a great model for us. Let's seek to make a commitment to honor Christ above all, to make him our message. Let's seek to believe and share 
the message God has given us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let us seek righteousness in our daily living and our actions. Interesting enough, these attributes of John, these actions of John, is why Jesus said of him, there's been no one born greater among women than John the Baptist. It seems to me he would be a pretty good model to follow if we want to be called great in God's economy. Let's follow John's model in honoring Jesus above all, believing and sharing the whole gospel, and in seeking righteousness in our daily thoughts and actions. My next step down there is for you to read some sections out of John 1 about John or John the Baptist's ministry. And these are all going to reinforce what we just talked about. But I hope you'll do that this week. Continue to reflect on the model John left for you and I, that we could live a life that would please God in the way John's lived his. Let's pray. Lord, so much in this passage really, I mean, really speaks to where we're at. Whether it's Monday morning or Thursday afternoon, I would really pray in each of our lives there would be a deep commitment that you, Jesus, would be exalted. You would be our message. And Lord, we'd present that message in an uncompromising way. That belief and repentance are necessary. And God, there would flow from our belief and repentance fruit. There would be a pursuit of righteousness, God. We would care about what we say. We'd care about what we look at. We'd care about how we treat people. And Lord, we know that there's nothing we can conjure up to be a better Christian or a better follower. But it's a deep, transformative work of your spirit. And so we surrender to your spirit, to your leading, to your guiding, to your ways. And so please work in our lives that we could be like John in the example he set. To point to you, to share the true gospel, and God to pursue righteousness. Thank you so much for that, Jesus. We just want to honor you. We just want to praise you. It's your name I pray. Amen.